Well, for those of you who are hoping, we are, we are, we are past the halfway point in our series through Ephesians. Um, and uh, we, we kind of took some time in that first opening verses of Ephesians to really break down what the Apostle Paul was telling us because he spent a lot of time writing it down. And, and I've said this before, but I just want to remind you of this this morning before we jump into our sermon today. The book of Ephesians is unique. It's very different. Paul is generally a very direct person. He, he launches right into his subject matter after a brief introduction. But to this, in this letter to the church in Ephesus, a church that he knew well, he spends an incredible amount of time trying to remind them about what they have in Christ Jesus. Part of the reason why I wanted to preach through this series or through this book is because I think that probably we as American Christians need to be reminded about what it is that we have in Christ Jesus. This is something big. I, I think that sometimes we just kind of suffer from the fatigue of knowledge. We, a lot of us have kind of grown up in families where the name of Jesus has been mentioned since we were little children. We've, we've gone to church. We've gone to VBS. We've gone to Sunday school. We've, we've been in the youth ministry. We've attended youth conferences. We've heard thousands of sermons. And we, we know these things here. But the Apostle Paul really was hoping that the church in Ephesus would not just have an intellectual understanding of who God was, but he wanted that to become something that was in their heart. He wanted it to become something that would transform who they were. Maybe that's one of the struggles that a lot of us as American Christians have. We have the intellectual information about who Jesus is. But if we're honest, and we would probably tell people this, our lifestyle isn't really consistent with what we know Jesus to be and who he's called us to be. We know that we're forgiven. We know that we've been adopted into God's family. We, we know that we're redeemed from slavery to sin. We know that we are loved by God. We know that he strengthens us with, with his power through the Holy Spirit. We know that we're the recipients of the boundless love and mercy and grace that God has provided. And yet we struggle sometimes to even, even spend time with him in his word or or to carve out time in our day to have a conversation with him about the things that we're struggling with. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, acts as kind of a pivot point in the book of, of Ephesians. Rather like Romans, the 12th chapter, and verse number one, where the Apostle Paul kind of pivots in the book of Romans from being a, a book about justification to what do we do since we're justified. In a lot of ways, the book of Ephesians is a, is a book about our relationship with God, about what God has done for us and, and to us. It's, a, it's the mystery of the gospel, if you will, on the front side of the book of Ephesians. And now Paul is transitioning, he's pivoting, and he's saying, okay, since now you are aware of how good God has been to you, now what? You know, that's a that's a question that a lot of people ask, and it's a good question to ask. Several years ago, I was spending, I spent quite a lot of time on the phone with a good friend who was going through a very, very difficult health crisis. And for a while there, it wasn't known if they were going to make it, to be honest with you. But eventually, they kind of came through that health crisis. And on the other side of that, they regained their health. They were able to kind of go back to work. And, and it almost seemed like a miracle. And yet, they were suffering from depression. 
And they're like, it doesn't make any sense, Jason. On one hand, I should be ecstatic. I thought I was a dead person, and now I'm, I'm relatively healthy, and they've remained so. I, I, I've conquered, I've overcome this health crisis, but I, I feel depressed. I kind of am lost. Now what? I think sometimes we all struggle with that question. What now? Now what? What am I called to do? Okay, so God, you've done this extraordinary thing. You have left heaven. You've sent Jesus to die on the cross. You have forgiven me of my sins. You have put me in a place where I get to hear and know the message of the gospel. People have poured into me. And here I sit in a seat this morning at Forest Park in a relatively comfortable place surrounded by people that I, I know or at least good Christian people. You may not know them. Now what? That is exactly what the Apostle Paul begins to answer in Ephesians 4. So if you've been hanging on, I had a good friend to come to me this week, and he's like, oh, Jason, I, the sermons are good, but when are we going to get to the application part? And I'm like, well, I've kind of wanted the same thing with the Apostle Paul through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, but he wrote it and God inspired it, so we're going to go with his draft. But now we're to the practical part. But I warn you, this is not easy. Because a lot of people like to read through the book of Ephesians, read past Ephesians 4, and fail to notice that the Apostle Paul has tied this together with this special word, therefore. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, or you want to click over with, you, with me to your app, Ephesians, the fourth chapter, we're going to pick up in... Uh, in verse number one of chapter four, as the apostle Paul introduces himself yet again, but in a very different terminology. And, and, and anytime that you have a therefore in the Bible, I think we all know this, but therefore is a, in light of what I've just talked about, this second half is going is to relate to this. And so as Paul is poured out about the goodness of God to us and our position in God, he now uses the therefore. And he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He invokes that emotional card. The church in Ephesus, no doubt, were very concerned about Paul. Paul at this time, we believe, is in prison um, in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. You remember he appealed his case before Caesar, and as a Roman citizen, he had the right to do that. A lot of people probably wonder then and now, why did he do that? Maybe the Lord led him to do that. Maybe it was Paul's idea of how he could share the gospel with the most powerful people in the world. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we know he's in prison. And, and he reminds the church of Eph in Ephesus this. He's like, hey guys, um, this isn't just like a regular guy here that's telling you this. This is a guy who is in prison right now because I believe this stuff so strongly. Remember the church in Ephesus, they, they were good at going through the motions, right? But they weren't real good about, about having a heart behind it. And Paul's like, I, I know what it means to have heart. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and with gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond, in the bond of peace. There is just one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on and he 
quotes an Old Testament passage. Therefore, when he, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led the lost captives and he gave gifts to men. We're going to break this down a little bit this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about what Paul is talking about when he says that we are called to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Now, I should let you know that this makes theologians very uncomfortable. If you want to see theologians squirm, this is kind of one of those texts to point out because there's this sense in all of us where we recognize, and I think that we can recognize that this morning, that we're in no way worthy to live any kind of life for the glory and honor of God. We are, in fact, in a lot of ways, just not good at it, right? It's not in our skill set. Most of us probably are very good at living a life counter to where God's called us to go. And yet, and yet the Apostle Paul said, I urge you, I challenge you. And that word urge right there is this really strong kind of like preaching conviction. I, I really want you to do this. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received which means a couple things straight off. Number one, Paul is passionate about this. This is important to him. That's the first thing to remember. But even more so, Paul believed it to be possible that we can live a life worthy. You see, guys, sometimes we forget, but Paul doesn't, that we have been given the spirit of the living God He talks about it being the seal in our life. He talks about it being, Jesus talked about it being the helper. And and the truth of the matter is that alone by ourselves, we're never going to pull this off. That's a problem. That's a tragedy of people who think that they have to do their, their work out their whole life themselves spiritually, right? That's why a lot of people are like, hey, Jason, I'm someday I'm going to become a Christ follower. I want to be baptized into Christ. But first I need to fix this, 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 and this in your life. And I, I try to encourage them. Let's, let's just Give our life to the Lord right now because the Holy Spirit will help you in immeasurable ways of dealing with this, 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 and this in your life. That's his job. That's what he empowers us to do. So I don't want you to back away from this this morning and think, okay, this is way bigger than me. No, God said, this is what I want for you. This is why I sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. That's forgiveness. But this is why I sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you because I want to empower you to live like my son. I want you to walk a life that is worthy. And when the Bible uses the word walk, it's not just talking about physical walking, right? Sometimes sometimes we, uh, we would maybe think that if we're a little bit younger this morning. But he's talking here about a metaphorical walk, a manner of life. Live your life in a worthy way. To conduct our lives worthy of the calling that we have received when we were called. So what is our calling? I think it's important for us just to reaffirm that in our minds right here. If we're like, okay, the calling that I've been called, what is that call? Here's that call, that we have been adopted as children of God. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. He lays that out right there, right? We've reviewed this, or we've gone over this, but just a quick review. We have been called to have the eyes of our heart enlightened to know the hope to which we are called in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. We have been told that we are the, God's workmanship in Christ to do good works. We're to be unified behind the head that is Jesus in Ephesians 2 and, uh, and 3. And, and so our calling is to live up to what God has said that we are. 
You are children of God in the room this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're a baptized believer, you are, you are children of God. Whether or not you act like it, you are one. And you have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to learn and to grow and to become the person that God has called you to be. When Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling, he means to live like you're a child of God. Some of us this morning might get a little bit uncomfortable about that. We might think, well, that's a little arrogant for me to say, well, you know what? I'm a child of God. So, guys, that's what Jesus called you. That's what Paul is calling us. We're not assuming a title that hasn't already been given. God chose that for us because he wants us to feel the heaviness of responsibility. Some of you know what it's like to, to have a family name to uphold or, or a reputation to uphold or expectations to uphold. And while sometimes in this world, those are very unfair, Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's still a yoke on our shoulders but it's not an unfair yoke. It's not a laboursome, laboursome, there we go, burden. It is something that we can handle because we're in this with the Lord. Every one of us in this room this morning has a calling, and that calling is to walk as a child of God. And guys, that needs to be first and foremost in our hearts and minds. I think we're all very familiar this morning about reputation and about image. We live in a culture that is obsessed with reputation and image. We, we, we constantly worry, how do we look to people around us? How do other people consider me? How, does my, how do my clothes, how does my language, how do my friends, how do my affiliations, how do my hobbies, how does my vocation affect other people? God would just really have you take an arm and scrap all of that and put one question on the table. When people see me, do they see that I'm a child of God? Because you know what, guys? You can be weird. You can be kind of awkward. You can be different, and God can use you in powerful ways. Case in point is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, right? This is a strange duck. If you've ever read the story of John the Baptist, you know this to be true. John is a guy who goes around in camel's hair clothing. He eats bugs and honey, all right, locusts and honey. People like to discover or to, to argue about what kind of bugs. I don't really care. A guy that eats bugs is weird. And this, is, this guy who is out in the middle of the wilderness is preaching in such a powerful, convicting way that people are making two- and three-day journeys from Jerusalem just to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. God doesn't need for us to fit the criteria, but he needs for us to look like his child. Now, that's a big assignment, I realize. But the Apostle Paul immediately launches into a description of that person. And I think it would do us well this morning if we took some time and considered what it is the Apostle Paul said, such a person with such a calling, what their lives should, should look like. So he starts off on that list right there in verse number two, and, and, and he says that, that these kinds of people should walk with all humility. And he had to start there, right? 
I think probably the majority of us in this room this morning, if we're pressed into a corner and we were in an interview with Jesus, so we couldn't fudge the truth, then he would have to admit that most of us probably struggle with pride. I certainly have, and consider that to always be a challenge in my life. We can be prideful people. And this concept of humility is a huge concept in Scripture. Guys, 81 times throughout the Bible, humility is mentioned, right? God wants for us to have a humble estimation of ourselves. And that's so important that Paul starts off this list of, I want you to walk a life that's a a walk that's worthy of the calling that you received. And the first thing on that list, I want you to be humble. I want you to have a small head as we would say. King James Version would say, lowliness of mind. But that doesn't mean that we don't think. It just means that we don't think that we're all that. You know, sometimes sometimes Satan tempts us to do things we would never do just because we have pride. We often talk about that moment in the garden, but it really is the beginning story of brokenness of man, right? Eve's in the garden and Satan's having a conversation with her. And later in Scripture, it talks about the things that really trip us up. is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, right? We get those. We, we see something, we want it. Our body wants something, so we want to give it to it. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. But the third thing in that list is the pride of life. You remember Satan employed all those really good. He said, look at this. And she's like, yeah, it looks good. And he said, I'll bet it would taste good. She saw that it was desirable to eat. But also that it would make her wise. Satan said, you know what? God's holding out on you. You don't know something that God knows. He knows what evil is. And it was Eve's pride that got her in trouble. She's like, you know what? I deserve. I deserve to know everything that God knows. No, we don't. Nor do we want to. I deserve to have this thing in my life. I am that important. And Paul starts off and he said, if you want to walk like Jesus walked, first thing that you've got to figure out is how to be humble. See, that's a crazy thing about Jesus. Jesus is a son of God. Jesus is a sinless son of God. Jesus is a part of creation. Jesus is a guy that can, on occasion, when it's not overtly obvious, do things that you shouldn't be able to do, like walk on water or raise the dead. This is a man who has in himself the power of the creator. And yet, when they are flogging his back, he does nothing to stop them. When they mock him, he doesn't reply. Because Jesus was fully aware of who he was. But most importantly, of who God had called him to be. I don't want you to mistake today and think that you need to leave here and think I'm useless and I can't accomplish anything and God has no purpose in my life. That is is Satan lying to you as well. Jesus knew who he was, and the Bible tells us that, and that he would return to the Father. And so he gets up from the dinner table on the night that he's betrayed. He takes off his jacket. He puts a a towel around his waist, and he wipes or washes the disciples' feet. You know why he does that? Because he's humble. Some of you guys know the name Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was a renowned black educator. He started the Tuskegee Institute. There we go. Get that spit out. 
But there's a story that's told about him that's rather remarkable. He was walking down the street one day and a, and a wealthy white lady comes up to him and she says to Booker T, she said, hey, she said, I have some wood to split. And he didn't have anything really that he was going to do. And so he said, okay. So he follows her to her house. She said, here's a wood pile and there's the axe. And he takes off his outside jacket and he sets about splitting the wood and he stacks the wood and he brings some in and he puts it beside the fire. She doesn't know who this man is. But when he brings the wood into the house, there's a young girl in that house who is mortified. And as Booker T collected his coat and said good day and walked on his way, this girl comes to her grandmother and said, Grandmother, do you know who that was? She said, no. She, he, she said, that is Booker T. Washington, the guy that's, that's a president of the Tuskegee Institute. Well, the woman is mortified by this point, right? She's like, oh my goodness, what have I done? There's a lot of things that go into that story and we're not gonna talk about that this morning. But the next day she returns and she apologizes profusely at the campus and says, I didn't know who you were. And he said, that's okay. I didn't have anything to do at the time. I kind of like a little physical exercise once in a while. And beside all that, I don't mind doing something for a friend. We need more Booker T. Washingtons in the world. We need more people that are willing to be humble and to serve other people and not so worried about their position or their rights. Guys, that's why Paul starts with humility in this list. He said, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. I want you to look like Jesus. So, first step, Recognize who you are. Satan has lied to a lot of us this morning and has convinced us that we are God. You aren't. I'm not. We'll never be. He is God. We are simply instruments. We are simply tools in his tool chest. We are parts of his body that he serves this world with. And as Jesus served, we are also called to serve. There's no room in the service of the Lord for a big head. Second thing that Paul mentions immediately following humility is this idea of gentleness. This is a lost commodity in the world today. In a lot of ways, we, we look at this and we're like, what exactly does he mean? Because we are not a genteel society anymore. We're not gentle. We, in fact, pride ourselves on being as abrasive as possible. We like people that just tell us like it is. I'm sorry, but the Apostle Paul apparently didn't get the memo. That's not a superior way to live. Because when we are abrasive, we end up breaking things. Years ago, I had a good friend that, that uh, two good friends, both of them passed away now. But one of them was, uh, was, uh, was operating a machine. And he came in, he had broken the machine, right? And uh, the older gentleman that was, that was the owner of the machine, um, after he told him, man, I broke it, I don't know how it happened, right? And he's like, okay, okay, we'll go fix it. And he, he turned to me as, as this other person walked out of the room and he said, Jason, I swear, that guy could put a dent in a steel ball with a rubber hammer, right? The, the, the problem is, is that, that it doesn't hurt to just take it easy once in a while when you're running a machine. You know what I mean? Yeah, you, you can... Right? But things break, and when you ramrod over people, sometimes they break too. Hey, you might be able to handle it, and good for you. I might be able to handle it, 
But not everyone in this world is as resilient and tough as you. Some of the people that you're going to have interactions with have a few more miles on them than you do. They have a few broken parts here and there. Maybe it's their fault. Maybe it isn't. You know, one of the things that you notice when you watch Jesus is that Jesus was always gentle. Now, he was firm. He was direct. But he was gentle. Woman caught in the act of adultery. You know, that story is just full of gentleness, isn't it? We know the story. We mention it often because it kind of doesn't look like how we handle things. These guys come trying to trick up Jesus. Jesus doesn't call them names. He just says, hey, guys, why don't the one of you without sin pick up the verse stone? That's very gentle. And then he begins to bend down on the ground and write something in the dirt. I don't know what he wrote. I think he was writing names and sins. He could have just said, and you, Ebenezer, you know what you did. And you, Caiaphas, you know what a fraud you are. He didn't do that. He just wrote the names in the dirt. It says from the oldest to the youngest, they saw, recognized, and left that they weren't worthy. And then he looks at this one woman left alone, and he said, where's all your accusers? They left. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There was a gentleness there. Jesus knew her story. You know, I think sometimes, guys, we are so preoccupied in the world that we live in today with protecting our rights or trying to control the world that we forget that we're the children of the king of it. Not the prince of the air, not Satan, but the king of creation. All things are under Jesus' feet. He is in control of everything. And he has promised that his children will inherit the earth. In other words, we'll have what we need. Jesus was flabbergasted. He said, he said, why do you guys go and worry so much about food and clothes, right? And we're like, well, Jesus, they're important, right? He said, look at the lilies of the field. They're perfectly clothed and they didn't even spin or toil. Look at the birds of the air. They have plenty to eat. Now, that's a metaphor that some of us might say, well, I, the lilies of the field are looking pretty dried up right now, Jason, and the birds are kind of stealing rice, right? But you get the drift of what Jesus was saying. He's saying these guys don't spend all day worried about what they're going to wear or what they're going to eat. They simply do what God created them to do. And so should we. The greedy in life grab and then they lose it. But the gentle inherit and gain. And that's what God calls us to do. Paul says, I want you to be humble, but I also want you to be gentle. And then he says that we need to have patience. At least it makes it third on this list, unlike his list to the Corinthians where patience is number one. But some of us probably know exactly how difficult that can be, to be long-suffering, to have self-restraint before jumping into action because a lot of us just want to do stuff and we want to do it right now. I'm with you. But remember, we're, we're called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we received. In other words, we're called to walk like Jesus walked. And, and Paul said, Jason, it's not about what you like or what makes you happy or getting things done on your list. This is about having the humility to recognize that sometimes God has called us to work on his schedule, not our own. There's a lady that called American Airlines years and years ago. She asked the clerk, and she was getting a ticket, and she asked the clerk, she said, how long does it take to get from, I can't remember the name of, of the American city, but I think it was, da it was Dallas. She said, how long does it take to get from Dallas to Frankfurt, Germany? Now, the woman is going to look this up on the computer, right? So she says what we say when we're going to 
take a little gap of time. She said, just a moment. And as she begins to type into the computer, Frankfurt, Germany, the woman on the other side said to her, okay, thank you, (laughs) and hangs up. You know, I wish that things could just be solved like that. You know, I wish you could just say, I want to be in Frankfurt and click your heels together and bam, you're there. But that's not how the world works. And that's not how life works. And you know, in Jesus' day, he was even more aware of this than we are. We don't realize how much the Industrial Revolution has changed our understanding of time but it really has, right? Back in the day, if you wanted to go from point A to point B, you had to get on a horse and you had to ride there. You had to get on a cart and go there. Not anymore. You, you can jump on a plane and be on the other side of the world in 18 hours. Less. Most of the things that really matter in life do not happen in just a minute. And especially when people are involved. Because we have feelings to navigate. We have insecurities to make certain that they're secure. We have attitudes to manage. We have truth to seek out sometimes. There's true intentions that have to be reshaped. There's misinformation that has to be made correct. And sometimes that just takes time. And it really leads to where Paul goes next. He said, I want you to be humble. I want you guys to, I want you guys to recognize that you, you have a need to be patient and I want you to bear with one another. If Jason had written this, he would have said, put up with each other, right? That's the word we would use. My mom would say it all the time, Jason, just put up with it, right? But sometimes you just got to do that. The real key of this passage is this prepositional phrase that is used in this portion of the text where Paul says, in love. Now, that little phrase is mentioned over and over again through the book of Ephesians. In fact, six different times. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, God chose us in love. Ephesians 3 and verse 17, that we should be rooted and grounded in love. We took a look at that last week. Ephesians 4, 2, bearing with one another in love. That's where we're at right now. But then later on in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, speaking the truth in love, building up the body in love, walking in love. Paul, Paul had spent all that time talking about those first three chapters and how much God loves us because he is just about to tell us, now you need to love the world as much as God loved you. Maybe that was a problem with the Ephesian church. Maybe they were more than content to do what God called them to do, but they really didn't care about the rest of Ephesus. I hate to ask this question this morning, but I think I must. Do we love lost people? Do we love people that don't know Jesus as much as, as we do? Are we bearing with one another in love because we have been shown such great love? I think there's a time coming where there's going to need to be voices within our culture and within our families that are telling people, hey, it's our job as Christians, as Christ followers, to bear with one another in love. Not because they're right not because they're, they're respectful, not because they have a right to say what they're saying, but simply because Jesus has bared, bore our, our lives. Can you imagine being Jesus, guys, coming into the world, a world full of sin, a world full of brokenness, a world full of people that you're doing nothing but good for but seem to be intent on killing you at every curve, and yet he just puts up with it? that the mission might be accomplished and that the Father might be glorified. Paul finishes in verse number three. He says, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. This is huge when it comes to church unity, and we're going to talk more about that later in this series, but it should be mentioned because it's how Paul wraps up this kind of outline of a, of a walk worthy. He said, I want you to be eager. In other words, I want you to be excited. I want you to, to put it as an absolute priority to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It means all of us recognize that even though we're very different, we may have very different opinions about things, that if we're a Christian, if we're a Christ follower, the Spirit, the same Spirit, the Spirit of the living God indwells each and every one of us. And that comes with a certain responsibility to work together for the good of the one who gave us that gift. Nobody's perfect. We all have bad days. And I think we all appreciate it when someone puts up or bears with us and maintains the unity and the bond of peace. We must be willing to do the same. Notice what Paul writes to the church in Colossae. He says in Colossians 3 and verse 12, he said, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if... One has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul said, hey, to church in Ephesus, he gives a very similar comment that he does to church in Colossae. Because this is what it looks like to be a Christian. It's not a bumper sticker on your car. It's not a t-shirt you wear. It's not an affiliation that you're on a roll of. Yes, your name is in the Lamb's book of life. But what it means to be a Christ follower is that you look like Christ, that you follow him in your lifestyle and in your passions and in your desires. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just something we get to choose. It's a lifestyle that's already been laid out for us. Why is Paul so passionate about this? We're wrapping up this morning. Why is Paul so passionate about us being centered around unity? Because God is one. There is only one. Notice how he finishes up the text that we looked at this morning. Guys, I I think sometimes we don't realize how important unity is in the church family. I think that we've kind of become comfortable with a certain amount uh, of friction amongst a group of people that that are Christians, that are Christ followers, and we we, we see that out in the world, and we're like, ah, it's normal here too, but it isn't supposed to be, right? It doesn't mean we all agree on things, but that means that we understand this, that there is one body, that's Christ's body. There's not a bunch of bodies out running around. You don't have different bodies of Christ with different understandings. No, Jesus said there's one body. I am, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? That's what he's talking about here. There's one spirit, Paul says. There's one body, there's one Holy Spirit. There's one hope. That's that we might have eternal life. There's one Lord. That's Jesus, Right? There's one faith. That's the faith that's laid out in Scripture, the belief that God sent His Son to die for our sins so that we could choose to follow Him. Because of that, our sins can be washed away, that we can be filled with that one Spirit that God provides. There's one baptism, baptism into, the, into Christ's body. There's one God and Father, the Heavenly Father. You notice how Paul just says, there's only one. 
as humans, we, we like to carve out our own thing, right? <laughs> like, like this, is, this is my church, and then they have that church over there. They have that church over there. Guys, we do that because we, we don't recognize that he's the boss. He's the head. There's one church, just one body. There's one, there's one Father in heaven. There's one spirit that indwells us all, just one. There's a lot of people that look at Christianity today and they say, you know what, I, I don't know if I want to be a part of that because, because it's just so fractured and there's so much fighting and there's so much confusion. That's the hand of Satan, y'all. Jesus wanted it to be simple. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is through all and in all. To not walk worthy is an attempt to divide what can't be divided, and that is this dangerous sin. So here's some things to take away this morning from this opening of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. I know it's a bit of a kind of a small drink from a fire hose sort of thing because probably if you're like me, you look at this and all the implications begin to kind of feather out because sometimes I'm not humble as I should be. Sometimes I'm not as patient as God calls me to be. Sometimes I don't want to bear with people and I find it unbearable that I have to bear with people, right? And so what that reminds us is that we all have growing to do and that's okay. But here's the things that Paul wants us to catch from this opening passage. Number one, our standard is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's not, it's not a great person that we once knew. It's not, it's not a grandfather or a grandmother. They were great people. But when you're comparing yourself to a standard, it needs to be the standard, the one standard. And, and we dare not let personal issues break up the unity that God calls and desires to be the message of the church. If my personality gets in the way, then it's time for me to recognize that I need to become smaller so that he could become bigger. You remember a moment ago we talked about John the Baptist and it was this time in John's life where, where John is imprisoned. And Jesus, he, he, he's kind of questioned about that by his followers because Jesus has come on the scene and Jesus is blowing up and his followers come to him and say, John, you were the biggest thing in town, but now Jesus is here and everyone's going over and seeing Jesus. And I love what John says. He said, it's okay. I must decrease so that he can increase. There's humility. We must deal with pride personally. We must deal with anything that doesn't look like the description that's been given both personally and as a church. They're not options, guys. If, if we're holding grudges against people, the Bible's clear. We've got to forgive those. We, we have to live with each other in unity. We gently yet firmly deal with sin and rebellion because sin and rebellion can destroy the whole church and what God wants to have accomplished there. If you ever read through Joshua, the seventh chapter, you know that one guy who takes a few things out of a city of Jericho ends up causing a catastrophe for all of God's people. Achan's sin ends up affecting a lot of people. My sin is never isolated to me. 
I want to think that. And Satan tells me that it is, but I know better than that. Rebellion messes with the spiritual environment and therefore it affects everybody. When you're rebellious, other people become rebellious simply by watching you. And I'm not saying that you're so rebellious that you walk out of the church and you don't have anything to do with God. That's, that's sad. But the kind of rebellion that scares me is people who say, I'm a Christian, but don't look like Jesus. That's a problem. Because people don't know what to do with that. And and the fault of my sin, the fruit of my sin can cause disunity. Sin makes two camps out of one every time, guys. If you you ever want to see a division, look at it. You can find a sin in there somewhere because that's what Satan does. He comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. He comes to break apart. God comes to put back together. I know that what I've said this morning is some big stuff sometimes for us. If we take it seriously, this is some big challenges. And I think sometimes we're scared of those big challenges. Story told about a little boy who, who went out to go take care of the chickens. And for whatever reason, their family had this rooster, and he was a massive rooster, a giant rooster. And when you're like a seven-year-old kid, even a normal-sized rooster is big. But this guy was a big rooster, and that kid was scared of that rooster. And if you've ever raised chickens, you know something when you're scared of the rooster. The rooster's like, <laughs> he gets a little cocky. So the kid's going to the chicken house to get the eggs. The hens scatter, and that rooster decides today's the day, and he attacks this kid, jumps up. It could be a pretty dangerous thing. My grandpa had a way of dealing with those roosters. We'll talk about that later. So he runs into the house, and he finds his dad, and he said, Dad, Dad, that big rooster attacked me. Dad said, well, come on out. Let's go take a look at that rooster. Which rooster was it? So he takes his boy by the hand and they, they walk back out to the chicken pen and as they get closer there, that big old massive belly is and he is empowered by his recent victory. He's strutting stuff in the pen. He will protect his chickens and their eggs, right? And the little boy points out, there he is, right there. <laughs> Dad says, let's get a little bit closer. Well, at this point, this guy is done with that. If you've ever been attacked by chickens, it's kind of scary, you know? So here the dad has his hands on both of his son's shoulders and he's pushing him closer to this rooster and that rooster's cocky. He's standing there. Boy, he thinks he's something. And they get closer and they get closer and they get closer until here this little seven-year-old boy is standing toe to spur with this, uh, with this rooster and the rooster's looking at him and he's looking at the kid. The rooster's not backing down, but that rooster's not attacking. And the father told his son, he said, son, kick that rooster. Dad, he said, What? So I said, Kick the rooster. Well, kid was mad. He got tack boy. He goes, Whoopa! He kicks that rooster. That rooster cuts a flip in the pen. He goes and he hides behind the hens in the chicken house. He never messes with that kid again. You know why that rooster didn't attack? It wasn't that little boy. It was that that rooster saw the father behind that little boy. Some of us have been dealing and struggling with sin, and we've been running from things for a long time now in church. It's time for you to realize that the Heavenly Father is behind you. His hands are on your shoulders. If you need to deal with something in your life, today may be the day that needs to be dealt with, and He wants you to walk right up to the face of whatever it is that you're afraid of, and He wants you to kick it out of your life because it's destroying you. It may be destroying your family. It may be destroying your church family. Some of us need to kick the proverbial rooster this morning. If you need to do that, 
Maybe you just recognize this morning, I'm lost and I need a Savior. There's some other people today that have said that this week, said, you know what, it's time for me to give my life to the Lord and I want to be baptized into Christ. You won't be alone today. If you've been thinking about that decision or if you just need prayer, won't you come as we stand together and as we sing.